uh, the church. So, Father, we thank you that we're here, that we can study your word. As we study these uh, letters to the seven churches, they are letters really for us. Because each one of these letters end with, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear uh, what the Spirit says to the churches, and that's us. And Father, I pray that tonight, that, uh, right now, we would do the last um, minute checking of making sure our ringers are off our phones. We want to be free from distractions. Um, Lord, we want to be free to hear your word go forth. And Lord, to be teachable tonight. And especially on a Wednesday night, we may come in a little tired, a long day. Uh, some have been up since very early this morning. You've worked hard uh, today. Uh, but Lord, we come because we choose to be here. Um, and we desire to hear from you. So I pray that you would just touch our hearts with your word and that we would make application for our church here at Calvary Chapel and that we would make application for our own lives personally. So we give you this time in the study of your word and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So you recall as, as we travel through chapter one of the book of Revelation, keep in mind that in verse 19, it gives us the outline of the book. It's really the only book of the Bible that gives an outline for the entire book. And, John was told, as you recall, he, he's there on the island of Patmos, uh, and as he would hear a, a loud voice, uh, a voice that was of a trumpet, he would turn to see the resurrected Lord. And he, uh, the Lord is described to us, and each one of those descriptions that is given to us, his hair is white as, um, you know, uh, and, um, you know, he is one white as like wool, white as snow, his eyes like a flame of, flame of fire, uh, out of his mouth comes the two-edged sword. All this description of the glorified Lord is used in each one of these seven letters to the seven churches. And Jesus, of course, he's standing in the midst of seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches there in Proconsular Asia. And as those churches existed, historical churches in the first century, Jesus is turning to each one of those seven churches, and he is writing a letter to them. Uh, John is dictating the letter. Chapters 2 and 3 should all be in red letter in your Bible, because this is Jesus speaking. And as he does, he turns, for example, to the church of Ephesus, as we saw, uh, the first letter that is written. And there's a fourfold pattern that we see in these letters. First of all, he says, I know your works. And that brings comfort to me, because sometimes we think, Lord, do you see my works, what I, I am doing for you uh, as I'm uh, trying to live for you, as I am uh, raising my kids in the ways of the Lord, as I'm taking care of elderly parents, providing for my family, as I'm serving you in, in some way, uh, maybe in a nursery or in the coffee shop. Listen, the Lord sees your works, and, and that is something that we need to always remember. And it was Paul that would write to the Corinthians, he would say that you be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I want us to always remember that because whatever it is that you do for the Lord, whether it's ministering to your family, you're praying for the saints, you're helping in practical ways, that what you do for him 
you do for a love for him and uh, because of his love for you and know this that it is not in vain that he sees it and he knows it and he's going to reward you for it as uh, we will talk about that as we continue here through the book of Revelation so that brings me good news so he knows our work second of all he brings uh, this uh, this um, this uh, this approval of what they were doing well he he, he brings to them, this is what I'm pleased in what is going on in this church. So he does that. He brings a positive uh, exhortation to them. Uh, as I know your works, this is what I uh, commend you on. So in that positive uh, commending, we see, for example, in the church of Ephesus, he would tell them that I know your works, I know your labor, your patience, that you stand for the truth and, and you haven't become weary. This was a church that was working. A lot was happening. They were standing for truth. Uh, I know that you come against the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which we're going to talk about here tonight. So those were all good things. But then the third pattern that we see, he brings corrective exhortation to them as well. These are the things you need, you need to turn away. Nevertheless, I have this against you. And as he was speaking to the church of Ephesus, he said that you've left your first love. And so go and remember from which you have fallen, repent and return and remain there. So that's the pattern that we see. And then he says that uh, for those who overcome, he gives this eternal uh, promise to them. And we see that in each of the letters as well. In the last week, as we looked at the church of Smyrna, they were the persecuted church. And there was nothing negative that the Lord had to say about Smyrna. It was all positive. It was the shortest of the seven letters that are here. But Smyrna, as we talked about them, Smyrna was a church that was really going through it. So the church of Smyrna had those characteristics there in the first century, just as the church of Ephesus had those characteristics. We're going to go through tonight and we're going to see the compromising church, the church of Pergamos, and then the corrupt church, the church at Thyatira, and we will see that the Lord addresses them in those four areas. But the church of Smyrna, I hope that you are blessed. If you weren't here, because I know it snowed last time and a lot of people didn't get out, but the church of Smyrna, he, he addresses them, he commends them. And in that, I think that there's so many things for us to consider what was going on in Smyrna because there in Smyrna, they had the worship to the Roman emperors. They had uh, De Roma, the, the temple that was dedicated to the Caesar, um, all the way from Tiberius to Domitian, who was ruling at this time. And so the people would go and they would burn incense to the Roman emperor. They would say, Caesar is Lord. And then it would be recorded for them. And then they could go and worship other gods. The, the Romans didn't care how many gods you worship as long as you would give your allegiance to Caesar. And Domitian was really into that. Historically, as Domitian ruled from about 81 AD to the end of the first century, he was persecuting the Christians very heavily because it was the Christians that were saying, we will not bow the knee to Caesar. So he had him put to death and he would persecute John, of course, uh, and put him into a pot of boiling oil there in Ephesus. It didn't hurt him. So they banished him to the island of uh, Patmos where he is isolated, receiving the apocalypse of Jesus Christ here. And we know that in Smyrna, if the Christians would have just gone down to the temple, 
uh, of De Roma and, and burn their incense to Caesar and bow the knee and say, Caesar, you are Lord, and then have it recorded. If they went down the street back to their homes or if they had a temple there uh, or a church there and they worshiped the Lord, no one would have bothered them. But because they said, we will not give our allegiance to Caesar and we will not say that he is Lord, they were persecuted very heavily. And I think that we need to consider that because in the day in which we are living in, to you and to me, the world is saying, we don't care if you worship Jesus, but don't say he's the only way to heaven. And don't say that he alone is Lord. And and you are to include other religions and say that we all worship the same God or there's many ways to God. And we see that pressure put on you and me today. So that's why as we consider these letters, even as we will go through the two churches here that will close the chapter, uh, Pergamos and Thyatira, it, it says something to us even in our day as a church and also as Christians. So let's begin to look at the compromising church as we read in verse Verse 12 of chapter 2 of Revelation, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos write. And so the third church that Jesus is addressing, again, uh, as you map out these churches, they're kind of in a circle there in Proconsular Asia. Jesus standing in the midst, he turns to Ephesus, writes a letter to them, Smyrna. Now he goes to Pergamos, and Pergamos, the city itself, was about 100 miles north of Ephesus, about 20 miles inland, so it was not a seaport city uh, like we saw with Ephesus and Smyrna. It did have a major trade route that went through it, and so there was commercial greatness that was in the city of Pergamos, and uh, we know that it was also the political capital of the Roman province in Asia Minor. It was also a city that was marked by pagan worship. A lot of the cities were, weren't they, there in Proconsular Asia? Um, And there was uh, temples that were built there to many of the Greek gods and Roman gods, and and even uh, an altar to, again, the Roman emperor. But especially the city, Pergamos, was known for the center of worship of uh, Asclepius. He was the god of healing and knowledge. So what happened was, is that diseased people, uh, people that were sick, diseased, they came from all over the Roman Empire. They flocked to Pergamos here for healing. And in the city, they would have a medical school uh, there in their temple that was dedicated to Asclepius. And he was, as you look it up, uh, he was a god, little g, that is symbolized by holding a staff that had a snake around that staff. And Asclepius was a serpent uh, on the staff. And, and what people would do is they would go into the temple, worship him, and then they would have snakes crawl all over them. And they thought that brought them healing. Yeah, pretty creepy. I don't like snakes personally. Some people do like snakes, but there's no way I would go there and have snakes, you know, just crawling all over me. They, they thought it brought healing to them. But as we consider that, here is, you know, this, this symbol, this snake on a pole. It reminds us as, you know, the Amer- American Medical uh, Association has that symbol as well, doesn't it? And then also you can think about it. It probably uh, reminds you of what happened back in Moses' day as you read there in Numbers chapter 21. 
Remember the story that uh, the people were rebelling against God, murmuring against God, and these serpents came and began to bite the people. So Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Moses, put a brass serpent, brass speaks of judgment, but put that brass serpent on a pole, put it in the middle of camp, and whoever looks at that serpent will be healed. And of course, it would be later on that Jesus, talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you recall that Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He was talking about that Nicodemus, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross because all of us, we been bitten by the snake of sin, haven't we? So all this was going on in, in Pergamos. Also, we know that uh, it was a city that had a very large library, 200,000 volumes, parchment scrolls, and that's all handwritten. Remember, they didn't have a printing press or anything like that. It rivaled the library in uh, Alexandria, Egypt. Matter of fact, historical writings tell us that at, you know, right before this time that uh, the Pergamos tried to take away the head librarian in Alexandria, and there was this big, you know, upheaval and uh, fighting going on, and they imprisoned the librarian in Alexandria uh, for thinking about going to Pergamos. And then what Alexandria did is they no longer sold the papyri for them to write on parchment, and that was, you know, a plant that grew along the Nile River. So they said, we're not going to do that anymore. So what happened in Pergamos is that they began to develop scrolls writing on a, a different kind of method and in a different kind of way. So it's all interesting as you look at the history of it all. We also know that in Pergamos, there was this huge altar that was built to Zeus. And this altar was believed to, and an image of Zeus, to be 120 feet high. Now that's tall. If you look at the top of, you know, the building up here, it's probably close to, you know, the second story, 40 feet, but 120 feet high, about 110 feet wide. So this huge idol that's dedicated to the worship of Zeus. And here is the church. It's a small church. Um, it was probably founded after Paul's third missionary journey. We talked about how Paul, in Acts chapter 19, he was in the city of Ephesus. He made that city the base of operation. He taught at the school of Tyrannus for two years. And out of that discipleship school, Young men went out and they planted churches throughout proconsular Asia. So it was probably started after Paul was in Ephesus at that time. And as we read here, uh, to the angel, the, the uh, messenger of the church of Pergamos, write these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, taking that, that description of Jesus from chapter 1, and each one of those descriptions is, is in the seven letters here. For the church here at Pergamos, you are the one, uh, says he, who has the sharp two-edged sword. And it, it speaks of the word of God. In, when we get to Revelation chapter 19, in the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he comes back and, and the nations of the world have gathered there in the valley of Megiddo in northern Israel in the last world war and they are fighting each other, when Jesus comes back and we come back with him, they will stop fighting each other and they will fight against Jesus. They'll try to prevent him from coming back. And it says that Jesus, in the description as he comes back, out of his mouth 
comes a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, he's simply just going to speak. And, and those nations uh, are going to be put down. He will judge the nations of the world at that time. So it's speaking of the word of God. And you know that Hebrews chapter 4 declares to you and to me that the word of God is what? Alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's why we spend so much time in the word of God here at Calvary Chapel. Because it's alive and it's powerful. And this is God's word given to us. It is inspired by him. And it will touch your heart and pierce your heart. And it's been so wonderful. It just blesses me when after a service or a Bible study that people say, you know, the Lord really spoke to me. And it's because the word of God is touching your heart. And I would encourage you to continue to be students of the word of God and allow it to touch your heart and pierce your heart because it's alive, it's powerful, unlike anything else. You know, we can enjoy books, we can enjoy reading, but there's something about the Bible that you have in your hand. That it is alive and we can read it and it speaks to us and, 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 and pierces our hearts and brings life to us and washes us. Even as we're going to talk about on Saturday that we are to be washed with the water of the word. It's absolutely amazing. So here talking about how he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And in verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So as we continue here, now here comes this positive affirmation that he's given to them. Here's where you're doing well, Church of Pergamos. Uh, and as he writes to them, I know your works, and, and where you dwell is where Satan's throne is. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because usually as you follow the history, you know, when they built up Tower of Babel over in that area where Babylon was by the Euphrates that you know a lot of people comment that's probably was kind of the headquarters of where Satan was but here we see that Jesus he says that it's in Pergamos that's where Satan's throne is now you imagine that thinking you know I'm living in, in a city where Satan's throne is and it's interesting because uh, it shows how uh, the paganism and idolatry was so prevalent in, in this city and false worship and all of that and here are these Christians they are in this city you know in the center of, of false worship in, in where Satan's throne is now a lot of people think that Satan's throne is in hell you know there's comic books, you know, and, you know, the Hollywood portrays that and the jokes and all that. Listen, Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the Bible tells us. He's the God little g of this world. And you remember in Job chapter one, that it was the Lord that said to Satan when Satan presented himself, that where you've been, Satan, and you recall that Satan would answer and say, oh, just going to and fro across the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? Yeah, I have. I've studied him. I've considered him. And he considers you and me as believers as well. He wants to try to get a foothold into your life and into your family uh, any way that he can. He studies us. He considers us. And that's what he was saying concerning Job. 
But we know that here they were in a very difficult place. So uh, where your throne is perhaps a reference. We do know that Satan will be cast eventually into the lake of fire um, for all eternity. But right now, he, he doesn't live in hell. He doesn't have a throne in hell, in Gehenna. That he roams the earth. He, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this world. And maybe here it's a reference that's being told to us of the huge statue dedicated to Zeus in the middle of the city. Perhaps it was, uh, again, just a reference to a city being full of idols. Uh, maybe because also it was the political capital of the province. But then as he commends them, he says to them that uh, you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. There were Christians that were there that did not deny the name of Jesus, the truth of Jesus Christ. When we get to the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of Philadelphia in chapter 3, that they're the faithful church. And one of the things he'll commend them on is that you have not denied my name, Jesus says. That you've kept my word. And here they're getting told something very similar. That you've held fast to my name. You did not deny my faith. Uh, the Christians were there. Uh, they were standing firm on the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's my prayer for this church. That we will never deny the name of Jesus. There are many churches unfortunately today that are doing that. Oh they'll speak of the name of Jesus. But they don't speak about the truth of Jesus Christ. And we understand that he truly is Lord, that he is the King of kings, the Lord of all lords, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That he's the Son of God who came and died for our sins, and he was put into a tomb, and he rose again, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And what I pray for us, no matter how difficult it gets, if we're in a Smyrna kind of situation where people are saying, oh, we believe in Jesus. He was a great teacher, a great humanitarian, a great religious leader. No, he is Lord. And there are those who will come against you and I because we believe in the truth and the name and the nature and the character of Jesus Christ that is given to us here in this book. And I pray that we never deny that. When the kingdom is established. Guess who's going to be sitting on the throne? It is going to be Jesus. It's not going to be Confucius. It's not going to be Muhammad. It's not going to be any religious guru. It's not going to be anyone else. It is Jesus alone. And as Philippians chapter 2 says, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so may we never deny the name of Jesus. I, I pray that we would hold fast to who he is and what he has done for us, what he means to us, that truly that he is your Lord, that he's the Lord of this church, and we do not deny our faith in him. So there are those who are doing that. Our faith is in Jesus, in him, and who he is, and that he saves and forgives. And so they were ones, the Christians, who held fast uh, to his name, didn't deny his faith. And he mentions Antipas here, who is my faithful martyr. Now, we don't know anything of him except what Jesus says concerning him, that he's my faithful martyr, 
the church historian Tertullian, who I've mentioned a few times already going through the book of Revelation, that says that he was a physician in that city that would not renounce his faith in the name of Jesus. So he was burned to death. Uh, his name means against all. He stood against all compromise and that which was false. And I pray that you and I would do the same thing today because the world is screaming at you and me to compromise. I don't have to tell you that. The world is telling us to back down and to compromise you know, our faith. You Christians, shut up. And don't you dare tell me you know, uh, that I'm living immorally. Don't you dare tell me that I need Jesus for salvation. Don't you dare speak his name. Isn't it amazing? That, you know, you can mention, you know, all kinds of different religious leaders and, and nobody gets upset. You mention Jesus and people get very upset at that. So here were those Christians that, hey, you know what? We're going to stand against all. Uh, we're not going to compromise. We're not going to deny the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, but I have a few things against you. And now he gives this corrective exhortation to them uh, because you have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice the idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So as he makes a reference here, you have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. What's the doctrine of Balaam? Well, for a lot of you who have read through the book of Numbers after chapter 21, the fiery serpents came and bit the people and Moses put a serpent up on a pole. Here are the children of Israel. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. They've, they come up to that area of Moab, where Moab is. And the king of Moab, Balak, he says, listen, um, I got to do something here. He's very much afraid of them. They've already defeated the Amorites, the King Og, and all of that. So what he does is he sends for this, this prophet called Balaam. And Balaam lived over in that area of Euphrates. And he, he seems to be a prophet of some uh, kind. And he brings him over and he says, Balaam, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to pay you a lot of money. What I want you to do is I want you to curse the children of Israel down there. And, and Balaam says, you know, I'd like to do that. I'd like to take your money, but I can't do that because God has blessed them as a people. And, and so he tries and he gives four prophecies. And instead of speaking, you know, curses towards the children of Israel, he speaks blessing to them. So here is the king of Moab, you know, Balak. He's upset at Balaam for doing that. And Balaam said, listen, I told you that God won't allow me to curse them. And that's what I've told you. But here's something that you can do. This is what you are to do. If God is going to have me, he's not going to judge them externally. But internally, if they turn against the Lord, then the Lord will bring judgment to them. So this is what you do, King, you know, Balak of Moab. You get all the young girls, get them all gussied up, send them down to the camp of the children of Israel. They've been in the wilderness for nearly 40 years. And you have them bring the little idols and seduce the young men and introduce idol worship. And that's what they did. And, and as that happened, the Lord brought judgment upon the children of Israel. He judged them for their immorality, for their idol worship. Like 22,000 ended up being killed at that time. So here is, is um, you know, Balaam. He still wanted the money. 
And that's the doctrine of Balaam that we see here. He says you have those uh, in verse 14 that uh, are a stumbling block before the children of Israel, uh, like Balaam was, to eat things, sacrifice the idol, and commit sexual immorality. And that's what took place in the book of Numbers there. You know what happened to Balaam? It's interesting. As you go to chapter 31 of the book of Numbers, when he, Moses, goes to war against the Midianites, it gives a list of all those who were put to death, the leaders, and one of them was Balaam. Balaam, who got, wanted the money so bad, offered to him, he did not get to enjoy it very long because he ended up being put to death. So here is the doctrine of Balaam. There are some commentators and scholars that suggest that the doctrine of Balaam points to replacement theology. And the reason that they say that, replacement theology, to remind you again, is that there are those who say that God has forfeited his promises to Israel because they crucified the Messiah and that the promises given to Israel now belong to the church and the church's spiritual Israel. We'll talk more in detail as we continue through the book of Revelation. Also, we're going to talk about it as we will enter into chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans that Paul's talking about Israel. And he will dismiss that, that theology altogether as he will say in chapter 11, has God cast away his people? He says, certainly not. He still has a plan for them. So some say that's the doctrine of Balaam is replacement theology, which actually is gaining popularity in the church today, even in evangelical churches today. They say that the church is spiritual Israel. God's through with Israel when we know that God has a plan for Israel, that Israel is the epicenter of Bible prophecy, and we need to always keep that in mind. So here he, he says, I have this against you. Uh, you have this compromise that's going on. And uh, you have uh, this doctrine of Balaam. And, and so uh, as he's saying that, there's compromise that's there in the church. You don't want that. That's why they're called the, the compromise church. And, you know, what is interesting here is here's a group that they're not denying the name of Jesus. They're holding fast to the faith. And then you have another group over here with immorality and idolatry. There was a mixture that was there. The book of Deuteronomy says, hey, be careful that you don't mix certain things. You don't mix linen with wool. It's not going to work. Don't yoke a donkey with an ox. That's not going to work. Don't mix different kinds of seeds. You don't do that. And for the church, it's very important that we don't have a mixture of the world here at Calvary Chapel that we bring in that we need to stand fast for the truth of God's word because what is happening, again, unfortunately in many churches, you don't need for me to tell you this. You can read it, you hear it yourself, but in many churches today, there's a compromise of, of immorality being allowed in the church, being accepted, even being celebrated today, and worldly things. And you and I, what I pray for us here is that when you come here, that we get away from the world. That we're separated from the world. Listen, understand what I'm saying. We are going to love those out in the world. We are going to be a witness to them. 
We're going to speak the truth in love. But when we come here, I don't want a lot of worldly things going on. It's kind of like this. The king of Ahaz. Remember we talked about Ahaz when we're going through Isaiah. And Ahaz was a terrible king. And he's all upset as you read those historical books in the book of Isaiah as well. That the king of Syria, the king of Israel, the ten northern tribes, Reason and Pekah, they were going to come against him. They were going to kill Ahaz put their own king on the throne there in Jerusalem. And they thought if we can have, you know, Judah and the 10 northern tribes, Israel and Syria, if we have this alliance and we go against the mighty Assyrians, maybe we can stop them. Well, Ahaz was all upset and it was Isaiah that came to him in Isaiah chapter 6. And you recall that Isaiah said to him, listen, this isn't going to happen, that th these two kings are not going to come and kill you. Um, and it was Ahaz that would not believe him. And Isaiah saying, ask for a sign. Ask for a sign in heaven on earth. Ask, ask for a sign. And Ahaz, who wasn't right with the Lord, said, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And so Isaiah said that the Lord's going to give you a sign Ahaz, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. So what happened was two years later, Ahaz trying to figure out what to do, he makes his alliance with the enemy, with the Assyrian, Tiglath-Pileser. And, and he says, Tiglath-Pileser, you take care of the Syrians. And of course he does. He comes into Syria. He kills the king of Syria. He's sitting on the throne there at Damascus with his new victory. The Assyrians, you know, were conquering that area of the known world. And so Ahaz goes up to see him as you read uh, in 2 Kings chapter 16, which was very unusual for, you know, a king to go and travel and see another king. So he goes to see Tiglath-Pileser sitting on his, you know, conquered throne in Damascus. And the king of Assyria has this idol there. And as Ahaz goes up to thank him, he sees that idol and he says, I like that. I like what you have. And I'm going to have my high priest make a duplicate of it and bring it into the temple in Jerusalem. And he defiled the temple. You see, one of the things that I never want to do is to look at the world and say, oh, that's so cool. That's so neat. And to bring that into the church, we need to be careful. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, there are those who say, you shouldn't have a coffee shop. We have a coffee shop, okay? Um, things like that. But I don't want to bring worldly things to where there's a mixture of that which speaks of carnality and sin and immorality into this church. I know for me, when I come here, I want to get away from the junk and the deception and the darkness of the world and come into a place where there is truly love and where truth is proclaimed and we can worship Jesus Christ. So that's what was going on in the church. And in verse 15, thus you have uh, also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So, so here is uh, holding on to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Um, we saw that with the church of Ephesus. Remember that? The church at Ephesus was a church that held to the truth. Uh, I know your, your, your perseverance, your labor, uh, you, you haven't become weary. You hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, Jesus said. And the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, Nico, which we get our word to rule, you know, like Nike comes from, you know, Nico, Nike, 
buy a pair of you know Nikes and you're going to jump higher you're going to be able to slam dunk you're going to rule over everybody that's where that word comes from so Nico and then laitens comes out of that laity it was those leaders that were ruling over the people the laity and Jesus says I hate that doctrine Now, what exactly that doctrine held to? There are those ancient commentators that say that they were ruling over the people. They were telling the people it's okay to be involved in idolatry and immorality, the doctrine of Balaam. And, of course, unfortunately, we see those who are behind the pulpit today that will encourage immorality and compromise, you know, um, in, in their congregations. But we also know that the other extreme is that there is John who's writing this letter. In his third letter, he talks about a man who ruled over the people with a heavy hand. And, and, and John says, you need to reject him. He, he's ruling over the people. He's kicking people out of the church and all of this. To the Corinthian church, Paul, he's writing to them about the super apostles and prophets that had come into the church at Corinth. In the church of Corinth, they were all into, you know, the Greeks were into how people spoke and dress and, and all of this, even your, your oratory skills. And those super apostles and prophets were saying of Paul, Paul's slow speech. You know, look at him. He's just wearing those old, you know, sweaty tent making clothes because when Paul was in Corinth he did not take anything from them even though the church exploded he was making tents he provided for himself he said listen we didn't come to you peddling the word of God we didn't take anything from you we came preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified And it was the super apostle and the prophets that had told the people, you know, you need to reject Paul. You need to accept us. And Paul says that they're false apostles. They're false prophets. They're ministers of Satan, they're, they, who Satan can even disguise himself as an angel of light. And we need to remember that. Because, you know, Satan, there's darkness, deception. Of course, he wants to put us in bondage. But oftentimes he will come to a church like an angel of light with his deception. And with the church at Corinth, they were, you know, being fooled by these false apostles and prophets because they didn't have the discernment. Because they were measuring people on man's method. You know, look at these guys. They're refined. They have great oratory skills. I think personally that Paul, as he said, I didn't come in his first letter to them in, in the wisdom of men or excellence of speech. There is some who suggest that perhaps maybe Paul stuttered a little bit. That brings me comfort. Because I know there are times that I feel like I stutter and stammer my way through a teaching. But Moses was used, right, that he was slow speech. And remember when the Lord first called him, that Moses said, I can't, you know, go and speak to the people. I'm slow speech. Well, I'll use Aaron. And Aaron was used for a little bit, but then Moses was able to speak to the people. And that brings great comfort to me because as Paul said, listen, these guys rule over you with the heavy hand there in Corinth, these so-called eminent apostles and prophets. And they even were punching the people in the face. And Paul said this, we're not here to rule over you, but we're here to be helpers of your joy. 
I've said this before. Sometimes I'll get people that say, you know, you need to call these people up and you need to tell them to stop doing this and to do that and not to date them and do do all these other things. Listen, I'm not here to rule over you. I will give you the truth of God's word. I will pray with you and I won't hold back the truth of God's word and I will give it with compassion and with concern, but I'm not here to rule over you. The Lord is here to rule over you. And the reason that Jesus says, I hate that doctrine because it puts a man between you and the Lord. And I never want to be between you guys. I want to be a helper of your joy. I want to lift you up. Uh, I want to encourage you. That is the role of a shepherd. I want to shepherd you. I want to guard. I want to protect. I want to feed. But I won't rule over you. I'm here to be a helper of your joy and you as well as you minister to others. And I've run into a few Christians that they want to rule over others that they're ministering. And, and you can't do anything unless you run it by me. And there's, you know, a whole shepherding doctrine. Matter of fact, um, there is, um, you know, a friend of my son, David, in, who's going to CSU. They was talking to a friend and going to a church that there was some concern there and some things that didn't sound right. So David was talking to him. And as we were reading about it, they have a shepherding kind of doctrine there that you can't date certain people. You can't do this. They separate you from your family and all of this in the church. And it's like, David, you need to talk to him about that and warn him against those things, a shepherding doctrine. And the shepherding doctrine used to be really big back uh, in the 70s in certain circles. And you still see it today. But here he's saying that you hate the, the uh, you know, I hate the doctrine of Nicolaitans. And some of you are holding on to that. And that was something that they were being rebuked about. But as we continue here, he says, Jesus says, that thing which I hate as well. Verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus tells them what to do, to repent or I'm going to confront you and, and judge you according to my word. You know, I, I love the word of God because it's truth. And as we read the word of God, whenever the word of God speaks to you that you need to repent, listen, repent, don't wait. To the next church, I was actually hoping to get to the next church. I don't think we're going to get to it tonight. But that's okay. Um, he says that you repent now. And, um, but because they weren't, there was going to be judgment that was going to come to them, to the church and, and those who were involved in immorality. Because we're going to see that the church of Thyatira had many of the same problems as the church at Pergamos. And the church of uh, Thyatira, there was a lot of corruption that was there. So in this, we we know that when we hear the word of God, what's wonderful about the word of God, when it speaks to our hearts and and we're told to repent from this thing, listen, don't picture that word repent as being an awful word because we can. And actually, it is a word that's not spoken of very often in churches today. There are pastors and Bible teachers that say we will not use that word repent. There's even more that say we won't even use the word sin. Well, we can't give the gospel correctly, accurately, um, without mentioning that there's a sin problem, isn't there? And that the last words that we see of Jesus in Luke's narrative is that you go out into all the nations and speak repentance unto the Lord in the gospel message. To turn to him. 
And that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. To repent simply means to turn direction. And that's part of the gospel message that we have. To turn direction and turn to Jesus. Today is the day for salvation. And if there's anyone here tonight that you're here or in the coffee shop or you're listening on live stream and you've never made a real commitment to Jesus Christ, he's saying, repent, turn direction, turn to me and receive me. Now, sometimes people will preach repentance that you have to repent and you have to clean up your act before you can come to Christ. Listen, you can't clean up your act until you come to Christ. So today is the day of salvation. Repent means quit going in the direction you're going. Turn direction and turn to Jesus. And you call out to him and ask for forgiveness. And then in this process of sanctification that we've been talking about in the book of Romans, chapter 6, 7, and 8, that when the word of God speaks to us about something going on in our lives, is there a compromise? Just as there was compromise here in the church, that the Lord says, repent because I love you. And I want you to turn away from that carnality, that sin, that compromise in your life because you're going to get hurt and it's going to deceive you. And it's a loving father that says, I don't want you to go that direction. I want you to be free as you live for me, as you walk with me. And that's the great thing about being a Christian. And always remember this, Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when he brings us that conviction by the Holy Spirit telling us to repent, remember it's a wonderful, wonderful word that we can turn to the Lord and receive his forgiveness and restoration and his love remains. And I'm so glad that I can repent. I'm so glad that I can repent and come to Jesus who calls out to me and says, come. Believe in me and whoever believes on the name of the Lord shall be saved. They don't have to keep going in a direction that's going to end up causing me to be eternally separated from him. But I can embrace Jesus personally, the gospel that has the power for salvation for all who believe, as Paul writes the theme of the book of Romans. And then to know that as I am saved and I am forgiven, today is the day of salvation, that as I now walk with him, that as I read his word, listen, that as he convicts you and you hear him saying, I want you to repent, it's not to push you away. It's to bring you to him, to draw you to him because he loves you and he wants you to be free and to experience the abundant life that he has for you. So that's what I pray that we would always remember. Don't picture, you know, repent as, you know, me, the, an old pastor standing up here with my bony finger, you know, pointing at you saying, you need to repent. Well, if you need to repent, repent. Because he loves you. And he wants what's best for you. And he wants to do wonderful things in your lives. And what my prayer for us as a church, but also for you individually, is that we would say that I don't want to have compromise. I don't want to have a mixture. I, I don't want to have the world in my heart and in my life. But Lord, I want to live for you every day in every area of my life. Because if there is a mixture, just as there was a mixture here in this church, 
Those who were holding fast to the name of Jesus, keeping the faith, others that were involved in the doctrine of Balaam, you know, immorality and idolatry, that this church, you know that there was problems, that, that it was difficult because of that mixture. And I pray that we don't have it here. Oh, we are going to accept those that come from the world and we're going to tell them that Jesus loves them, but we're also going to tell them that he desires for them to repent and turn to him and be forgiven, right? And in our own lives, if the Lord is speaking to you to turn to him and repent from whatever, maybe an attitude or something you're involved in, something you've been watching, then turn to him and call out to him that he may help you and that you're not in bondage to that thing because he loves you and wants the very best for you. So here in this church, and this is where we're going to finish, he says in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, um, and to him who overcomes, remember an overcomer is one, 1 John 5, 5, is one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. You recall that um, as uh, here is... Um, he says, I give to some of the hidden manna to eat. Remember the manna that fell in the wilderness? But in John chapter 6, Jesus said, after defeating the 5,000, you guys, you're asking for more food, but don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. And they said, give us this bread, you know, feed us again. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And Jesus is the bread of life. And as we go and as we drink of him and eat of him, that speaking of close fellowship and taking of his word, it feeds us, it refreshes us. But if you go after the world and the philosophy of the world and the ways of the world, you're going to be hungry. Remember he said to the Samaritan woman, you drink of that well there, Jacob's well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I have to give to you, living waters, you'll never thirst again. So I want to ask you as we close tonight, are you thirsty? Where have you been drinking from? What well have you been drinking from? The well of the world, compromise, or the living water that Jesus has to give? And then promise number two as we close here tonight, that I will also give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. A white stone was something that was given as maybe a, a ticket kind of like to a banquet, a sign of friendship perhaps, a sign of acquittal in the court of law. That's what a, a stone was all about. And all that is given to us as believers. You know, we're going to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb <laughs> together. The wedding feast of the Lamb. I can't wait till we're all together at that banquet eating with the Lord. It's going to be so glorious. Jesus says, I no longer call you slave, I call you friend. And know that we've been acquitted because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. He's our advocate. He's our defense attorney, as 1 John says. And then we're going to get a new name. What is that going to be, that new name? Well, nobody knows. I wonder, what is our new name going to be? It doesn't surprise me because we're going to get a new body. We're going to get a new name. I have a feeling, don't make theology out of this, but I just have a feeling that, you know, throughout the Bible you see names were given, particularly in the Old Testament, that characterized people's lives. Like Jacob, heel snatcher. Esau, which means carnal, you know, 
Harry and all of this. They would name their kids after, you know, that characterized them. So perhaps our new name will have something to do is with how, you know, our characteristics were in this life. I don't know for sure. So what is that? Is it faithful? Is it praise? Prayer, you know, of some sort? Just, you know, being strong in the Lord, something like that. What characteristics do we take on? But whatever new name we have, it's because everything is new in Christ. And we will live in a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem with new bodies and a new name. So wonderful. The promises of God. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your word given to us. We didn't get as far as we wanted, but that's okay, Lord. Because this church, a compromising church, speaks to us. So, Lord, I do pray that tonight as we close here that um, we consider the things that were going on. There are those who are holding fast to the name of Jesus and not denying his name, uh, keeping the faith. And I pray that that would be true for us. And Lord, I do also want to pray if there's anyone here that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, really, truly. Maybe you've been to church. Maybe you've tried to be religious but you've never made a commitment personally to him. And Jesus says, turn to me. In other words, repent. Quit going in the direction you're going and turn to Jesus to be forgiven because he is your salvation. He died for your sins on that cross. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot work for it. You cannot be good enough. Only Jesus, who died on the cross, has provided forgiveness. He rose from the grave as he was put into a tomb. He conquers sin and death. And as we come in faith, putting our trust in him, we are justified freely by grace, by the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. He redeemed us. So if you've never done that, today is the day of salvation. He loves you. You come as you are, recognizing your need to be saved and to be forgiven. And you can pray right where you are sincerely that Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and that as I come, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe that you're alive and that two-edged sword is piercing my heart right now as you speak to me and the word is speaking to me. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing me, Lord, and for your forgiveness. And I do want to know you and walk with you and enjoy you. And Father, I do thank you for this new beginning that I have in Jesus' name. And listen, if you prayed that prayer, if you're here, we're going to have a prayer team up front and come tell them the, the decision that you made. But for all of us, that we would not have compromise in our lives. That if the Lord is speaking to you about something, it's because he loves you. He wants you to be free. He wants you to turn away from that which will hurt you and harm you and deceive you and, and put you in bondage. Turn to him. He loves you. His words always are come. It's never get away. It's always to come. And confess it to him and ask for help whatever it might be for you. And Lord, we want to stand fast for you. 
And we don't want the world in our hearts and in our lives all the time. We're in the world. But Lord, we don't want the world to prioritize us, to dominate us. John says that we're not to have a love for the world. That is the worldly things. To have a love for you, to know that we are pilgrims passing through. We belong to another kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would just fill your people with your love and assurance how much you care for them. So, Lord, I thank you for bringing us here tonight. Take us home safely. We look forward to the conference on Saturday. I pray marriages would be strengthened and healed and benefited and blessed because of the conference. And I also pray for Sunday as we gather as your people once again that we would understand this, that there is no separation from your love. So, Lord, we thank you for these promises that are given to us. So, Lord, take everyone home safely. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?